0: Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. In 1571, at the age of 38, Michel Montaigne, a French nobleman and politician, retired from public life and retreated to his estate near Bordeaux, where he intended to spend the remainder of his life in tranquility and calm, reading, thinking, and enjoying the simple pursuits of life. The only problem was Montaigne fell into a minor depression. As a way to ease his mind, he started scribbling down his thoughts and observations in order to study them. What started as a few jottings turned into an epic, intense, brutally honest, and at times humorous self-examination called the essays. In this book, Montaigne ultimately seeks the answer to the question, how do I live the good life? But unlike most other philosophers, Montaigne in his writing doesn't tell the reader how to achieve the good life. Instead, He comes at the question from a hundred different angles and perspectives, using his own life and experience as a means of examination. He asks questions and suggests possible answers, but ultimately, he leaves it up to the reader to decide for themselves. His motto, the phrase he comes back to again and again, is, What do I know? My guest today is Michael Perry, a writer from rural Wisconsin, who was so influenced by Montaigne that he wrote a book, Montaigne and Barn Boots, an amateur ambles through philosophy. In this episode, Michael talks about how he came to discover Montaigne, the lessons he's learned from Montaigne, how surprised he was that he could relate to a 15th century French nobleman, and most importantly, how Reedy Montaigne has changed his life for the better. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Michael Perry.
1: The Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived.
0: Michael Perry, welcome to The Good Life.
1: Glad to be here. I'm sitting in a little room over my garage, overlooking the back 40 of our little farm here in Fall Creek, Wisconsin. Leaves are coming down.
0: I like the fact you're over in a garage because the person we're going to talk about today is Montaigne, who liked to write up in a tower, and I'm sure we're going to hear about that. So our subject today is Montaigne, the 16th century French writer, and some might call philosopher, who wrote an incredible book called The Essays, in which he pretty much invented the form of the essay, and I hope we kind of get into that. And he covered a wide variety of subjects, all the major aspects of the human life, things like love, death, sex, education, politics, friendship, marriage, travel, food, reading, memory, decision-making, and I could go on and on. You wrote a wonderful book about your experience reading Montaigne and what you've learned from Montaigne called Montaigne in barn boots, which probably applies to that little farm that you're talking about there in Wisconsin. But how did you first come to discover Montaigne and what attracted you to his writing?
1: Well, I remember how I discovered him very clearly. I had a kidney stone and it was my first kidney stone. I wound up in the emergency room. I was a freelance writer, self-insured. I was on the gurney in the ER thinking, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. And at the time, I was doing a lot of writing for Men's Health Magazine. And I thought, hey, maybe maybe they could use an essay on what it's like to have a kidney stone. So I literally, from the ER, called my editor and said, hey, I'm in the emergency room with a kidney stone. And he said, why are you calling me? I said, well, maybe we could write an article on this. And he said, well, that sounds okay. And I, I said, well, great news for me. And then, to shorten that story, I did end up writing a piece, and what they paid me for the piece I believe came within a couple hundred bucks to the deductible, so <laughs> I felt like I broke even on my kidney stone. But in the process of writing the piece, I you know, wrote my first-person stuff, but then I also did research, and I went to medical library, and I pulled a lot of articles about kidney stones, renal calculi, and I actually have a nursing degree was my education. I have a bachelor's in nursing. And so I went to the local hospital library and pulled all that information. And you know how when you read medical research, the doctors that are writing it or the researchers, they really, in their heart of hearts, want to be writers, essayists. And so they always put the cool little anecdote thing in the abstract up at the top. And the cool little anecdote thing that just kept recurring was this reference to this 16th century French philosopher and essayist, Montaigne. And here I am, I'm a guy at that point, I was making my living basically writing essays, but I do not have a literary background. Farm kid, I worked as a cowboy, I got a nursing degree and very accidentally wound up writing. So here, I should have known who he was, but I didn't because it turns out, as you said, there's a little quibbling here, but he basically invented the essay form. And so if he hadn't invented the essay form, I wouldn't have been making a living. So I thought, well, this Montaigne guy, he's popping up. So I looked into him and I found out that He was this philosopher who had had a kidney stone. And so I thought, well, I better read the essay he wrote about his kidney stone. So I started reading the pieces he did on kidney stones and then quite naturally wound up drifting off into the other stuff. And part of it was, as you said, there was just everything. I mean, I came to it with this preconception philosopher, capital P, it's going to be really heavy. But all of a sudden, you know, you mentioned a lot of the good ones. But I mean, on the one hand, he'll be writing about faith and hope and humanity. And then he turns around, he wrote an entire essay on thumbs. He wrote an entire essay on the dangers of coaches. And by that, I mean the ones with wheels, not the ones with ugly shorts and a whistle. And it was this moment where I realized, oh, well, if this is philosophy, I'll have some more. And then also you relate to him because he really had no filter at that point. And that is how I came to him, was very specifically through a kidney stone.
0: Your resourcefulness in Calling your editor is just amazing, and I understand it's quite painful to go through a kidney stone. In reading Montaigne, he talks about the pain quite a bit. I didn't have any painkiller or anything back then either. It also speaks to this surprise that many people have when they originally confront Montaigne. The surprise is that he's very accessible, that he talks about very mundane, humanistic experiences. My original preconceived notion of Montaigne is stuffy, academic, would probably not enjoy reading him. And it was just the opposite. And it's great that you had the same experience and you share that in your book with so many wonderful anecdotes. One thing that people tend to do when they read Montaigne is see themselves somehow in Montaigne. And you talk about that in the book. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Did you see that too?
1: I did, but I also arrived at an opposing conclusion. And that is that, first of all, that is absolutely the appeal of Montaigne. So here I am. I'm originally I'm a farm kid from northern Wisconsin. I grew up in a poor family. Now I go to great pains to point out I never went to bed hungry. I you know I was loved. So those are the two greatest privileges in the world. But I grew up on a working farm. It was a big deal to go to town once a year to buy a pair of tennis shoes. So here's this nobleman, born to money, had money, lived in a castle. Like you said, I write in a little little room in my garage overlooking my pig pen. And Montaigne wrote in a castle tower on the castle grounds that his family handed down. So on the one hand, we're nothing alike. I mean, he was being trained to speak Latin at the age of two. He went to university when he was 14. He was trained in the law. He was a lawyer. He was a mayor. He was a soldier. And so in many ways, I'm nothing like him. And yet you constantly go, oh my gosh, that's me. One of my very favorite things about Montaigne was the day I read the passage where he said, I can't remember anything I read. I write for a living. I read voraciously, have for years. And one of my greatest frustrations is I can't quote passages. I don't remember where I read stuff. I have to go back and find it. Here's this guy who invented the essay form going, yeah, I really have a hard time remembering things. And so you relate to that. But the other thing in the book is I talked about the danger of that too, that just only cherry picking the areas where you go, oh, that's just like me. It is equally important to focus on those areas where you're different and ask yourself why. And so you can do that with Montaigne too. For me, it's the obvious things. I'm not a nobleman. But yeah, pros and cons there. I think you can spend too much time just affirming everything that you believe or feel. And on the other hand, uh, there's a a really tough chapter in there, at least it was tough for me to write, called Roughneck Intersectionality. That whole chapter is about me via Montaigne confronting things that I don't agree with him on, or even I don't agree with other people in the world on, and how that's just as important.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the appeals of Montaigne is he does tend to stretch... The reader in some ways and will push you. And in other ways, he's encouraging the reader to push back because another thing that normally strikes a reader when you read Montaigne is this lack of dogma. You don't get what you might typically think you would get in a philosopher or that we tend to get in philosophers, which is a system of thought that is coming at you with a lot of confidence So this is how the world is. And it's pretty much the opposite with Montaigne. There's this saying, and you talk about it in your book, where a theme with Montaigne where he says things like, I could be wrong. I think you call him the king of qualifiers or something like that. And this other phrase that he comes back to again and again, which he's well known for, which is, what do I know? So can you talk a little bit about that aspect of Montaigne?
1: That has only come to appeal to me more over time about him and Particular to our time. I, like I think so many of us, am so hungry for a conversation where I'm neither trying to convince or be convinced. I would just like to learn. I dedicated the book, the dedication to the book says, for those willing to approach conversation with something less than a steamroller. Dude, just give me some air. Let's talk, right? You know, I happen to live in a place, I still live in the the rural, relatively roughneck area where I was raised. And over time, I've come to think differently on some things than some of my neighbors. But on a very fundamental level, like if my snowplow breaks or if I'm gone and I need someone to feed my chickens, I must maintain, if you will, a dialogue with them. I don't have the luxury of writing them off. And so you come back to Montaigne constantly where you're saying, well, here's what I think, but I could be wrong. Honestly, 48 hours ago, I had a very could have been tough discussion with someone who is my neighbor. And we were coming from very opposite sides and we talked about it. And I think we're probably both in the same place, but we know a little more about each other now. That's the thing. Montaigne was just interested in knowing more about himself, but equally those around him.
0: I, I agree with you on that, Michael. And I and I think if you look at the context within Montaigne was writing he was writing at a time I mean we think we have a divided America right now he was writing in a time when in French culture and society there was a massive civil war between Catholics and Protestants where it was very bitter and very violent at times yet he took the opposite approach of not being dogmatic he was known as not being on really one side or the other and being someone who was in the middle which could have been a dangerous place for him so I think there might be something about the times that he came up in and how he came to this conclusion, and there's something we can all learn from that too.
1: It's tricky, that that middle ground, because I'm often studying myself and reflecting on, on Montaigne for that very purpose, because sometimes I worry that I'm cowardly. I should be more outspoken about this thing or that thing way back, I wrote a book called Population 485, which was about being on the fire department in my hometown and making ambulance calls. And, and I always say that when I left my hometown, I was a farm boy, a good student, and a fair defensive end. I returned 12 years later a long-haired writer with soft hands and a nursing degree. So there was a certain amount of street cred to recover with some of my buddies. I have a chapter in that book called My People where I start talking about in those 12 years, you know, when I came back, I wasn't the same guy I used to be. And I didn't think the same about some of the things I was very certain about back in in the first 18 years that I lived in that place. And that's still where I am. I mean, again, that chapter in the Montaigne book called Roughneck Intersectionality, it's about where my gut is, where my knee jerk is, but then where my head is after going through experiences that suggest there are other ways to look at the world, or even more importantly, that other people experience the same world differently.
0: We can all benefit from having more empathy or an understanding, a way to look at the world through other people's eyes. And have some empathy for their perspective as well. And that's something that you take away from reading Montaigne. He was interested in his own views, but he also was very curious about the perspective of others and became very non-judgmental. I think that's one thing that that I took away from reading him is trying to be less judgmental of those around me and, and other perspectives that I come into contact with.
1: One of the things that I noticed, I grew up with all these wonderful mentors I would never call them that to their face, but that's what they were. And I'm now 56, I think. I had to ask my kids the other day to tell me how old I was. I'm in that window of time. It's not that you don't want to admit it. You just don't remember or care. But I'm 56. And one of the things that's been a recurring theme in my writing, and it's a huge part of the Montaigne book, is I watched many of my mentors hit my age, and they seem to take one of two paths. They either became very open to the idea of what was changing and how to take that in and how to navigate it, or they became very bitter and brittle and just dug their heels in and I don't want any change. And I just think Montaigne is helping me take that more open path. Let me be very clear. I'm not talking about sacrificing your morals or your principles and for dang sure, not talking about trying to hang out and be hip with the kids. I mean, that's a huge mistake. I mean, I'm a and in, in our house, we listen to the children, we speak to them like adults, we try to have conversations, but you know what? The grown ups are still in charge, but I do want to be open to young and fresh and new ways of thinking and even new ways of acting and perceiving the world that I thought I understood. Yeah, Montaigne's really helpful in that, in empathy and uh, thoughtfulness and reflection.
0: You talk about in the book, this idea of the importance of responding to change with change. And not responding by proverbially putting our head in the sand or digging in or or sultifying our positions that montaigne took this attitude of curiosity and openness to the world and it's refreshing and it's inspiring
1: for me the example that i often use this isn't something that's necessarily in the book i do have a chapter on aesthetics but poetry so i was this roughneck kid i grew up i did do a ton of reading when i was a kid but I was by no means an esthete. I was a pickup truck driving, deer hunting, football playing, sort of small town kid. And it was fairly late into later college when I really started to go to poetry readings and get into poetry. And it turns out I was a really bad poet and it's really hard to make a living as a poet. So I kind of veered off into prose. But there's this whole idea with poetry. And I'm thinking of Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet. I love his work. And so often people will tell me, well, I just don't get it. I go, well, that's the first mistake. Just read it. Just listen to it. Feel how you react to those words. And Dylan Thomas himself said, I choose words for their taste over their meaning. I think that's a wonderful way of looking at writing and especially first drafts and that sort of thing. And that's what I'm kind of trying to get at with this Montaigne book. And that's, I think, what Montaigne was trying to get at. It's like, just be open to the idea. It doesn't mean that you got to read Dylan Thomas every day. It doesn't mean that you all, all of a sudden have to become a poet. I wrote that book, Population 45, I turned it into a play and we took it on a tour around the state of Wisconsin. And one of the things I loved is because that play involves volunteer firefighters, we would have sold out theaters around the state, small theaters, let me just say, I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, but we'd have sold out theaters, but there would always be a contingent of who you would expect to be coming to the theater, but there were always some satin firefighter jackets or some EMT logos. And those folks would come up to me afterwards and say, I haven't been to a play in 20 years, or I've never been to a play. And I don't need them to start going to plays every week. I just am so happy that they came to that one. And now they experienced it, and they can do with that experience what they will. And I think that, again, that's part of Montaigne. It's not saying, well, now that you tasted this thing, you have to love it. No, you just needed to taste it, and you can make your own decision.
0: Another theme that Montaigne takes up that you talk about in the book, and I think Montaigne even changes his view on this over the course of the book, is this idea of how to confront death. The essays were sort of written over time. We should probably mention that they were written over a long period of time.
1: And amended and emended and edited. The real academicians can tell you all the different versions and the A, B, C, D, and all that stuff. It's fascinating. I have no capacity for it. But speaking of things you taste and then say, well, I'm going to leave that to someone else. But yes, if my memory serves me, one of the reasons I related to Montaigne is I kind of made this art too. So he started out as the stoic about death. Like you have to learn to face death without emotion or fear or anything. And then he just slowly migrated to another position, which is more an acknowledgement of it. For me, one thing that helped me over time, I've volunteered as an EMT, a first responder for, gosh, 32 years now. And I'm not at all, I don't feel that I have any bravado about it. It is what it is but you do confront death on a regular basis and you confront tragedy and you very quickly come to understand how little control you have and montaigne had his own brush with death when he was knocked unconscious from a horse and nearly died and one of the things that working closely with death does for you is i think about death every day and montaigne pondered death all the time and people say well that's macabre that's creepy and i go no not at all it's a, it's a handshake sort of a thing it's like it's not that you're going, oh, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. It's like when you do die, you look at death and you go, eh, I figured you were coming.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's building a little familiarity so you have that grace and that composure and, and that acceptance.
1: And again, he made that migration, so I'm past that too. He also came to realize, and I too, in observing actual death, that it, you may have this image of you approaching death stoically, but the truth is you don't know how it's going to happen and you have no idea how you're going to react, so. The idea of being stoic in the face of the death is probably a misplaced priority, is what he came to feel.
0: And I think there's also an aspect of enjoy every day. When you do sort of shake hands with the Grim Reaper every day, or however you put it in the book, it is a reminder that each day is a gift, that it's another step on your human journey. It's another experience. It's another opportunity or possibility for curiosity to get to know your neighbors, to build social relationships, to read, to all the things that Montaigne loved to do, to drink some wine and hang out with your friends. And he sort of celebrates this stuff along the way as well as he's talking about these bigger issues. You talk about in the book, he's got this highbrow, lowbrow that I think you embody in many ways too, being the writer on the farm and writing philosophy while in Barn Boots.
1: I'm so glad we got here because yet I have the chapter where I I open with the scene where my wife and I took our daughters and we went to a Shakespeare festival. And then within 48 hours, I took my daughters to a little local thing here called Augusta Bean and Bacon Days, and we went to the Demolition Derby. And my point to my daughters was, did you notice what a great time we had at both events? Culture can be consumed on a sliding scale, and it's, you know, it's fun up at the high end, it's a lot of fun down there at the greasy end too. I also remember telling my daughters as we left the demolition derby, we were getting out on the road and they're trapped, you know, so they got to listen to me. And I said, you know, when Shakespeare wrote those plays, they had a place called the pit and you could pay a penny and you could eat peanuts and drink beer and yell at the actors while the play was going on. I said, this wasn't always some esoteric highbrow thing. This was for everybody. And I said, and the people at the demolition derby back in those days, they would have been at the play. And this gets back again to what I talked about with the My People chapter and the Roughneck from Population 45 and the Roughneck Intersectionality chapter in the Montaigne book is that I'm always trying to have those different spectrums or different levels of the sliding scale intersect. You know, I want to make this clear too, it's not about me being oh so wise that, oh, well, I'm a good person because I enjoy dirt track, stock car racing and poetry readings. No, it's that I feel really lucky and fortunate. That I stumbled into a life where I know people who enjoy both, and we enjoy them together.
0: Exactly. That's one of the things that I enjoy about reading Montaigne, that there's a delight in moving from experience to experience. There's another aspect of Montaigne's life that I think I'd like to talk about, which is the fact that he wrote during the plague, you know, especially given that we're going through this COVID experience when the plague arrived in his town, he lived near Bordeaux and he was the mayor of Bordeaux for a while. He fled. He picked up his family. He had the means to flee. A lot of the people around him, the peasants and people of poorer means could not flee. What do you think about his experience there and what we can take away from it?
1: Well, you do remind me that, and this is maybe more relevant to your previous question, but when he was a child, his father, who was a very wealthy nobleman, chose for his godparents peasants. And he sent Montaigne to live with them for the first few years of his life. And that informed his thinking for the rest of his life. When he was a lawyer, he helped put together cases and what he took from that was that if you don't have money, you don't have justice. You know, that's a pretty modern thought. At least we think of it as a mo- of course, it's not a modern thought, but that's one of those moments where he surprises you, where he reminds you there's nothing new under the sun. And so when I think of him during the plague, picking up to leave, there's no question he was a man of privilege and i think he understood that but i know that he was not a man of blithe privilege i guess is how i would put it i think i have a passage in that book about the blithe reach you know it's like i'm fine with you if you're rich but just don't act like it's nothing and i can't imagine that when he left he didn't do it conscious of the fact that he was availing himself of privilege. And that too feeds back into something we were talking about previously, reminding me of is that one of the things he's helped me with, I write about gratitude a lot. And I wrote an essay on gratitude. And one of the things that the past couple of years have done for me is to teach me that gratitude isn't, it's not always the, oh, yay, celebrate. No, one of the most important forms of gratitude, I think, is when you learn to acknowledge and express gratitude, even when you're not happy even when things aren't going well. And I think, you know, for me, I'm doing fine. But the past six months, you know, half of our little family, we're basically a little small business. It's just our family. I write stuff and we try to sell it. And about half our income comes from me being on the road and that, that shut down and is still shut down. And so the last six months, there have been some days that weren't great, but I'm still able to look around and go, yeah, but I have a place to live. I have a freezer full of food. I've got a back 40 full of venison if it really comes to that. And those are those Montanian moments where you go, yeah, just consider your privilege and apply it. And it doesn't mean that you've got to get rid of everything and dress up in sackcloth and ashes, but at least nod to your fortune.
0: I definitely took away a very similar... Message from Montaigne. And there's another point. I want to see if I can get the quote here where he talked about he didn't consider himself a moral exemplar. He didn't put himself out there as some kind of pinnacle of morality. In fact, he said his morality was exemplary enough if you take its instruction in reverse, which I I love his humor. So if you do whatever, the opposite of whatever he did, you might live a moral life, which kind of speaks to his humor. But what he did do was document from a very objective perspective how people reacted and acted in certain situations and and maybe I'll just bring up one if we could talk about which is one of my favorite essays it's called On Cannibals it's about his experience of meeting some natives from Brazil the french had a colony in brazil at the time and, and some of the natives came over and he got to meet them they were i believe in the court of the king of france and he was able to interview them and he wrote a wonderful essay about this culture and where he really shines a light on morality, Western Europe's morality at the time, morality of these cannibals. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Well, it's one of the most powerful pieces I think he's written. And it's also talk about things that just have modern day relevance, or I should say contemporary relevance. Yes, he kind of flips the standard. He goes along with the idea that these folks are, to use his word, or at least the English equivalent of his word, savages. As they're cannibals. But then he flips it and he starts talking about what the Protestants and Catholics are doing to each other, but they're doing it with nice clothes and they're doing it within the law and within a certain framework of so-called civilization. And so in their case, he just does a lovely job of flipping the argument. I was reminded in your intro to the question, there's an entire chapter in my Montaigne book called Shame. And it comes from that bit about Montaigne saying, hey, don't look to me. I'm talking about this stuff, but I'm trying to learn. I'm not telling you. And people will say nice things to me about my writing, and that was beautiful, and I love how you composed this or that. And I always feel compelled to say, yeah, but just please don't forget, I am, on any given Tuesday, I'm a 50% successful dad. I'm a, you know, I didn't make the mark as a husband. My wife stepped over my dirty socks for the 15th time, and that's just the fun stuff, right? So, I have a, a decent audience. You know, if I hustle, I can make a living. That's the shorthand. I'm not famous. I don't sell millions, but I sell enough. If I hustle, I can make a living. And several of my books are of a certain genre. They're nonfiction and they, they have humor and heart, and, I, and they're all from my heart. But when I went to write this book, when I signed the contract, I told my editor, I said, about half of my audience will not like this book. And I was right. <laughs> At least that's what the sales indicate. But Here's what fascinates me. Not since my first book, Population 45, and I'm, I'm on my, you know, Montana's like 12th book or so. Not since that first book have I written a book for which I have received so much heartfelt correspondence, emails, letters, notes, comments. And it just shows you that if you write a book that contains a chapter called Shame, and you write about some things that people really would rather not hear about you, let alone themselves, you're going to lose part of your audience, but you're also, man, you're going to connect on a level with some readers that you never expected. And now we're back to Montaigne, where here I can read the work of a nobleman who retired to his castle at 38 and yet go, yeah, man, that that's me, for better or
0: worse. Well, one of the things I love about your book is you model Montaigne. You don't necessarily talk about it directly, but as you're reading the book, if you read Montaigne, you start to realize what you're doing is putting a little modern spin on Montaigne in some ways. You're taking the Montaigne playbook, you're taking Montaigne's, the magnifying glass that he points at his own life, and you start pointing it at your own modern life, which a modern reader can relate to. And I certainly enjoyed that. And what it did is it brought Montaigne more into the 21st century from the 16th century.
1: I really appreciate that because that was my general intent. I don't, have a big detailed plan when I write a book. And it truly did start with me sitting in a deer stand out in the woods, reading Montaigne on my iPhone and just thinking, oh, well, there's people in academia who have built entire careers out of parsing one paragraph of Montaigne. And here I am like sitting in camo in a pine tree going, well, I think the world should hear what I have to say about this. But I also, I always try to never forget, and I'm not always successful at this, by the way, but I always try to remember there's a, A writer named Darcy Frey, and he's probably the best known for, he wrote an article called Pushing Tin, which became a a movie with, I believe, Billy Bob Thornton in it. And I also think he wrote a basketball book. I want to say it was the last shot, but I might be confusing my basketball books. But I saw him speak one time, and he talked about the tricky business of writing in the first person, writing about yourself, because it can quickly go wrong. You know, Why should anybody care what I have to say? But Darcy Frey said, any time that you type the word capital I, the letter capital I, it should be transparent. It should be not a means of talking about yourself. It should be a means of someone being able to look through you and see something else. And so I hope in writing about Montaigne that I was able to do that, that they could look through my foibles. I talk about you know feeding the chickens and then try to take that through to Montaigne.
0: That universalism... Of Montaigne, even though he's writing through the first person, the overwhelming appeal of his writing, it's sort of amazing when you step into it and start to read it. Towards the end of the book, you come to this really, I think, a profound conclusion. It's a beautiful passage. You write, through the examination of my imperfections, I can better serve my obligations to others. And that's sort of the big takeaway that you got from Montaigne. And I just want to point out, it's true, you talk about imperfections in your book, but they're also very funny. You make it fun along the way to read, but it's also very serious. So can you talk about that conclusion? Because I related to that too.
1: I come from, again, that very blue-collar background. If you can't stack it or stack with it, it don't count. And so I've struggled, is too dramatic a word, but I'll use it for shorthand. I've struggled. Even as I've made a living, supported my family by writing, typing, putting books together, writing essays, I've always had this little twinge of guilt that I, you know, it's not real work. My brother's a logger. What he got up and did today, I just can't compare to that. I have these soft hands. But the truth is, I've worked really hard at it. And I also come to this. I always have said, I'm a writer with a small W. Nobody asked me to do this. Nobody asked me to share my wisdom. And I just got into it by accident, tried to figure out how to make a living, and I put art in there whenever I can. But I also, you know, my muse is a guy named Jim. He sits in a swivel chair nine miles up the road from me at the Shatek State Bank, and he holds my mortgage. If i write another book, he takes my house away. It's a symbiotic relationship. But nonetheless, in doing this, in writing this Montaigne book, there's this little part of me that says you do have some responsibility to not just try to write a book that's entertaining. But to take what you've just written seriously and look at yourself, and I always say, man, I see my biggest project first thing every morning when I look in the mirror, and signs are not always good. You know, I have a chapter in there about my marriage. So my wife, one of the things I've always loved about her from day one, even when she met me, I was already writing books. She hadn't read my books, and she still doesn't read my books. I have learned, however, that if you write about your wife, you should let her read those passages, A, to fact check, and B, to see if you're going to be allowed back in the house. And so I do share passages that really involve her. And I wrote that marriage chapter and it's an honest chapter. And I said, I remember taking the rough draft up to her and saying, you probably ought to read this one. (laughs) And she read it. And when she handed it back to me, she just said, yeah, pretty much it. I was expecting her to go, oh no, honey. You know, she like, yep. And you know, there's an example where I go, well, if I took the time to write that chapter for the book, I really, truly should try to apply this to myself. So yeah, ultimately, that's what Montaigne does for me. It's a form of self-examination. We all need it. And uh, his is kind of a, a fun way to do it because he's a funny guy too. The other wonderful thing about him, if you pick up a copy of the essays, it's daunting because it's a brick. But don't worry about it because the good news is you can drop it on the floor and wherever it opens, just start reading. It's one of those books.
0: Yeah, you don't have to read it from front cover to cover. In each essay, I should probably mention, you could look at an essay that says maybe say on education or on smells. Well, actually they go, it's of, it's of smells, of names, of cruelty, of thumbs, of diversions. And you might often find that it has almost nothing to do with the title, that he's going to go off on another tangent somewhere, but it'll be a fun journey. And it's just delightful. I really hope that those in the audience that are interested in Montaigne do pick up a copy of Montaigne and read Montaigne, and also pick up a copy of Montaigne and Barn Boots as just kind of a companion piece, maybe the, the modern look at Montaigne and, and another view from not a tower in Bordeaux, but above a garage in Wisconsin, and still have some fun reading it. Sitting
1: there right now, and I can see the chickens even.
0: Michael, this has just been a wonderful conversation. Where can people find out more about you and your writing?
1: The very best place to start is just go to sneezingcow.com. That's my the URL for my website and all my social media platforms and my worldwide multimedia.
0: All right. Well, thank you for being on The Good Life.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe Provide a review in Apple or Spotify and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.